So tonight, my title of my sermon is Jesus the Bridge Builder. And so let me begin by reading, this is a great text. By the way, I mentioned that today in the liturgical year, um, this is Transfiguration Week or Transfiguration Sunday tomorrow. And so I thought it'd be great to be able to preach on this text tonight. So it comes from the Gospel of Matthew, the 17th chapter. Here are these words. Uh, six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and his brother John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became dazzling white. And suddenly there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Then Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be up here, for, if you wish. I, I'll make three dwellings uh, here, um, one for you, uh, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And while he was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud a voice said, this is my son, the beloved, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him, exclamation point. When the disciples heard this, they fell to the ground and were overcome by fear, but Jesus came and touched them, saying, get up, don't be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus himself. As they came down from the mountain, Jesus ordered them, tell no one about the vision until after the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. This is the word of God for the people of God. Uh, thanks be to God. Amen and amen. So I was reflecting upon this and begin with the idea of uh, climbing mountains. You know, when I was a little boy, I loved to climb. Matter of fact, I started when I was about four. And I'm um, um, not climbing mountains, but I, I love to climb fences. And my mother and father, um, this is true. I mean, back in the 1960s, you know, I just kind of, I was four or five years old. I ran around um, a little neighborhood. We, the parsonage is in, on Button Tree Lane. I still remember the address there in Jacksonville, Florida. My father was the associate pastor at Arlington United Methodist. And so I just kind of ran around the neighborhood. I had my buddy, my little kid, my little buddy named Brian, Brian and uh, we just kind of ran around. And, and so I, re I remember mom and dad telling me, he said, you know, um, they gave me the warning. They said, do not climb that fence. Do not climb the fence. Do not climb the fence. Do you think I listened, no. Climbed the fence, climbed over to the ditch. They told me there were snakes over there, crocodiles, evil things that would get me. I, oh, that just made me want to do it all that more. <laughs> I love to climb, even the age of four or five. So then um, I, I ventured forth, and then um, um, my, my 10, 11, 12 years old, when I was, we would go to Kentucky every year, and my cousin Mary Ruth and I would always go and we'd climb the pinnacle, and the, this is in Berea, Kentucky. Matter of fact, I got a couple of pictures. So this is my, what I graduated from, actually from uh, climbing fences up to climb. This is overlooking, moving uh, towards the city of Berea, and there's another picture, if you could put the next one up. So there's a, this is what it looks like. From, this is beautiful. This is in Kentucky. So then after I uh, we did that, then I graduated, and I started climbing other higher mountains, and this is actually in Qumran. This is where the Dead Sea Scrolls were actually found. So I actually took that picture. I climbed up the top of that mountain, and then I graduated from that, and then I, we started climbing around. This is Mar Al um, Arbel, which overlooks the Sea of Galilee. Jesus, probably within a shadow of doubt, climbed up there. Um, to go up there and properly pray. It's one of the most beautiful uh, scenic views over the Sea of Galilee, so we climbed that. Then I ventured forth, and then we went out to Utah and I started climbing, like this is Fisher Towers, and that's my son, I think that's Jordan or Luke on the, uh, on the so we climbed that, so we did that. And then we climbed, and so then I climbed um, that mountain, and that's in Zion National Park, that's um, Angel's Landing, and that is a hoot of a, that's a really great hike, and so I really, matter of fact, here, let me be transparent. After my accident, um, I part of my therapy 
was imagining to go back to that place and to be able to climb that mountain again. And that was part of what continued to keep me moving forward to be able to go back. And I did it. And I was really excited about it. Then the, here's the next picture. And here's another picture of um, Air Jordan. So now don't tell their mother that they actually climb, jump, not only to climb mountains, but they jump off mountains. So there's the picture of Air Jordan. And then here's another great picture. And this is a picture of me climbing a Yosemite. No, I'm just kidding. This is actually Eric Honnard, who's the greatest mountain climber in the world. He actually uh, climbed El Capitan um, without a rope. And he's the only person in the world that could do that. It's amazing. And then, um, and so then the next picture, once again, is uh, this is this summer. And this, I think that's a classic picture of Harold Hendren, isn't it? This is how I felt after, you know, we climbed a grandfather mountain and, um, and it was perfect weather. And then it started pouring down rain. And that's exactly how I felt coming down the mountain. And so what's interesting, it was such a beautiful hike until it started pouring down rain. And then we got back to the parking lot. And then what's interesting about, if you ever gone to Grandfather Mountain up near Boone, North Carolina, there's a bridge there. Matter of fact, can you see that next picture? And so after you climb the mountain, there's this beautiful bridge that connects um, part of Grandfather Mountain to another part of the mountain. And um, it's just um, it's just beautiful. So not only do you have a chance to climb the mountain, but you have a chance to be able to climb the bridge. So I was thinking about all this this week and I think about the idea of Jesus the bridge builder and about climbing mountains. So what's very interesting is that this particular story about the mountain of transfiguration not only is about Jesus, uh, Peter, James, and John. He takes the inner circle up there and we have Moses and Elijah. But also this pivotal story is actually a bridge builder in the context of the gospels. So what's very interesting, so I looked up this week, because I always do my detective work, and I, I looked up the idea of what does a bridge mean or represent in the Bible? So this is what I came up with. It bridges uh, inherently symbolic in many references in the Bible, a common communication and union where it is to be between heaven and earth are two distinct realms. For this reason, it can be seen as a connection between God and humanity. It can be a, the passage of to reality of merely a symbol from traveling or crossing about from one place to the other. And then I, I love this part. Um, we can't build a bridge to God, but Jesus Christ is God's bridge to us. Can I be meant on that? I love that. And so then I was thinking about this way. And, and what's beautiful about Jesus being the kind of the bridge builder, I mean, Jesus is always building bridges to people. He was building bridges to sinners. He was building bridges to tax collectors. He was building bridges to fishermen. He was building bridges to the sick and the lame and the possessed and the blind. Jesus was in the bridge building business. And so what we're gonna be launching in this brand new sermon series on Lent beginning um, this next weekend, and we're gonna talk about you know looking at Lent through the lenses of Luke. And what's powerful about when Luke looks at them, when you get Luke's story, there's this distinct character that, um, that Jesus was always reaching out to the nobodies and making them feel like they were somebody. So we have this wonderful theme when we think about this, Jesus the bridge builder, reaching out to the sinners, building bridges. And I love this, is that there is, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and humanity, the human Christ, Jesus. Timothy wrote that. I love the idea of Jesus being the bridge builder. 
So then, um, so this text tonight, um, so let me just kind of preach and teach on this idea about transfiguration. So I learned a lot. I, I went and really did my research this week, and I tried to find everything I could about, about the tra- mountain transfiguration story. So this is a really key event in Jesus' life. And not only is it a key event in Jesus' life, but it's really a key event in the Christian calendar. And um, so when we think about this, so we just came through, we came through Advent, and then we go through Epiphany, and then we have, I preached a couple of weeks ago about baptism, and then, um, and, or last week, and then we, and then, the, the, then we launch in, so this Epiphany Sunday is the Sunday before, and it's only three or four days where we get to Lent, because we start Lent on Wednesday. And so this is a pivotal point, not only in the Christian year, but it's a pivotal point in the life of Jesus' life. And so, um, so this is a, a bridge between seasons, as we find, as we go from this epiphany season and baptism, and then we move into the Lent season. So this is really, really important. So when we think about this, this, this event, this is a key event in Jesus' life. And so what's really powerful about this is that, well, first of all, the transfiguration, transfiguration literally means to, to change. And so there's something that happens significantly on that particular mountain on that particular day. And, and so there's something about Jesus' persona, their, um, his presence. There is this um, brilliant countenance that transfigured Jesus to make him seem um, different um, in the eyes of Peter, James, and John. And so there, the, the way that the scripture describes this in Matthew, it, it's almost like he's glowing. Um, there's this major countenance. And when you look at the scripture lessons, we find this when you think about the idea of Jesus glowing, there's a couple of points that really, when you think about glowing, it really points to Jesus's glory. Let me say that again. When you think about this, his presence being changed and this countenance being changed, and all of a sudden it's like he's glowing, it points to his glory. Now, what's very powerful about this, whenever I read this particular story, I always go back to something that Don Piper said. And out of, I've heard Don preach probably, I don't know, 20 times. But one of the most powerful things he's ever expressed in his testimony, when he said he got to heaven, he was there for 90 minutes, right? I love what he said. He says, you know, Harold, there is no need for a sun or a moon because the countenance of Jesus Christ lights up all of heaven. I love that. And so that's actually written in the book of Revelation. But as, G, as, as, as Don was reflecting upon his experience in heaven, the presence of Jesus Christ is so brilliant and glowing. There's something about this radiance that comes from the countenance of Jesus Christ. So I think that's really interesting, a key part of the story. So we have this part of the transfiguration. We have the part of Jesus that the glowing part points to the glory of Jesus Christ. And it's not just kind of our earthly glow. This is different because it points to the glory that has to do with heaven as well. Then we have um, the other part, and I think this is a really important part this um, last week. You know, um, um, I was thinking about, the, we have Peter and James and John, and then the, who are the other two Old Testament characters that show up? We've got Moses and Elijah. Okay, and so what's really interesting is that Paul even talks about, he says, the law and the prophets bear witness to the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Let me say that again, Paul says, the law and the prophets bear witness to the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. So Moses 
represents the law because God gave Moses the Ten Commandments. Elijah represents the law of the prophets. So there are two most important figures that we have in the Old Testament. Moses and Elijah happen to be on the mountain. And what's very powerful, we have this idea that once again, if Moses represents the law and Elijah represents the law of the prophets, what's very powerful is they're a bearing witness to the glory of Jesus Christ. In other words, I love this. When you look at the story, you have Moses and Elijah, and they're pointing towards Jesus. So in other words, Jesus is greater than the law of the prophets. Jesus is greater than the law that that ultimately was handed down to Moses on on the Mount Sinai. Jesus ultimately is um, the culmination of what Moses and Elijah have been talking about all along, and they all point to Jesus. The law and the prophets bear witness to the righteousness of God through our faith in Jesus Christ. I love that. So this is a really important part when you think about it. So what's very interesting, you have to go back and really kind of read the, re-read the story. So the, when you think about Elijah and Moses, there are two stories that we find. And by the way, what's very interesting is that Elijah and Moses, both when they have a mountaintop experience, they have it on the same mountain. So here's what's interesting. So now Moses was tending the flocks of Jethro and his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and he came to Mount Horeb a.k.a. Sinai, and the mountain guide, and the angel Lord appeared to him in the flames of the fire from with the burning bush. Moses saw through the burning bush the fire and did not burn, and Moses thought, I will go over there and see this strange sight, and the burning bush did not burn up. When the loss, and when the Lord said that he had gone over to the look, God called him from, from within the burning bush, Moses, Moses, and Moses said, here I am, Lord. So we have this great mountaintop experience that Jesus, that God speaks to him in the mount, um, not only in a burning bush, but we also have this great mountaintop experience that Moses has this connection with God and um, at Mount Sinai because this is where he ultimately receives the Ten Commandments. Now, what's interesting is Elijah. So once again, okay, so let me teach for a second. Elijah has this powerful experience. He goes to Mount Carmel. He takes on all the prophets of Baal. And he wins, he kicks their butt. And it's an amazing story. And so Moses is gone, this, like, it's like winning the Super Bowl, right? He has this Super Bowl experience. And then he has to literally, and so Jezebel puts a, a bounty on his head and he has to run for his life. Now he's a fugitive. Guess where he goes? He goes all the way down to Mount Sinai. Same spot that ultimately Moses receives the Ten Commandments. And what's very interesting is that, um, so the Lord said to him, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was the earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. But after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after fire came a gentle whisper, a still small voice. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. And the voice said to him, Elijah, what are you doing here? I love that. I love that story. What's powerful that is to me, and I always find myself in this story, and maybe you all 
can kind of figure this out on your own about your own experiences of life when God is spoken to you. Because here's what I, here's my kind of analogy. And you're not gonna find this anywhere else. I just made this up. So Elijah goes from the Super Bowl to the toilet bowl, just like that. He goes, so what I mean by that is he has this mountaintop experience. He goes to Mount Carmel. He's feeling really good about life. He's taken on the prophets of Baal. He's won. He's amazing. He full he can conquer the world. And then all of a sudden he's fleeing for his life. And he goes and finds himself all the way down this late Mount Sinai, the same mountain that God speaks to Moses. And you know what? He, he literally crashes and he almost, he comes suicidal. He starts complaining. He says, listen, and basically he says, I'm the last guy standing here, Lord. You know, nobody's listening. No one's paying attention. And yet what's interesting is that God asked him that very profound question. Not only asked him once, but he asked it twice. And the reason why I think he asked him the question twice is because he wants to be transparent. He wants to become self-aware. And so what all of me is, Elijah, what are you doing here? Now, let me tell you something. This last uh, Thursday, we went on our salt retreat um, over here at the Life Enrichment Center over here in Leesburg. And I've got great history there. I, I love going there. Um, I, I, was, I was never a camper there, but I served on the, on the leadership team as a camp counselor. Two of the greatest summers of my life was actually spent over there in Leesburg at that camp. I love going there. But when I came through the Board of Our Name Ministry, you know, I passed as a deacon and then I would move on to the next level to become a full elder. And I've shared this with you, the story before. And, you know, I got, I got a decline. I got um, deferred the, the first time I went through. And I still remember going at three o'clock in the morning and I was a complete loss. And I went across to the dock. And it reminded me, because when I was there this last Thursday, I went out and walked to the dock. And it all came flooding back on me. And I sat in that dock for hours and hours and I asked the same question that God continued to ask Elijah. And I heard it. Harold, what are you doing here? So what's interesting is that, you know what I found in my life and maybe you have also experienced, sometimes when God, when God speaks to us, sometimes God speaks in a very dramatic way and sometimes God speaks to us in the sheer small voice in a gentle way. And maybe it's even a simple little hush. What I think is very powerful in my life, and I don't know if you experienced before, is that sometimes you can feel like you're on the top of the world and you're on the Super Bowl, but there have been times in your life you feel like you're in the toilet bowl. Can I amen on that? And what I mean by the toilet bowl is when you feel like you're tanking, you think, and you ask, and here's the great, here's the powerful thing. We, in the midst of that toilet bowl, so often I have, Harold, what are you doing here? Um, I still remember walking across the parking lot at Faith United Methodist and I was about to give up on the ministry. I was really close to giving up on the ministry. And as I'm walking across the parking lot, guess what? Harold, what are you doing here? The other night, um, a couple of years ago, I was in this horrific car accident and they pulled me out of the car and they laid me in the middle of the intersection. Harold, what are you doing here? So what's interesting is that a lot of times in life, God speaks to us on those kind of sheer small voices and the most, and a lot of times when God speaks like that, it's not some kind of big Super Bowl climactic. Usually in my life, when God speaks to me in those kind of gentle, subtle moments, it's usually when I'm not in a very good place. But when God speaks, here's the beautiful thing, when God's speaking to you, you know God's still there because God's speaking. 
if you're listening. By the way, what's interesting about this text is that um, God says in this, this is my beloved son. You need to listen to him. So what I, I found in my life, and I don't know, maybe in your life, I think it's really, really important when we tune in to think, I think what's really interesting is that in this story, the, the word um, sheer small voice or uh, and the silence, um, what's powerful is it's actually connected the book of Psalms and it has to do with, of all things, um, it's like a hush and, the, and I think it's the 107th Psalm and it talks about when this, ultimately it's connected with the storm is finally over and God is finally speaking. And I love that, that whole imagery that God speaks to us sometimes in the midst of the silence, in the midst of our valleys, even when we feel like we're in the toilet and God yet still saying, and listen, it means that God's still there. And maybe if you know what's beautiful, when you look at the little translation about that still small voice, that hushed voice, it's almost in the, in the Hebrew translation, it literally means like it's barely audible. I love the imagery that it's almost like an oxymoron, isn't it? When you think about the still small voice, how can you hear something in silence, right? And yet God continues to speak to us. I love that. You know what else I love about this story is that, you know, um, um, God's, God was, um, Moses go, I mean, Elijah goes to the same spot. What's very interesting, of all the places that Elijah could have gone, he goes to the exact same spot that Moses goes to, right? And what's very interesting also about this particular story is that um, Moses has this place where God's passing by and he says, go and put yourself in the cleft of the rock. And the little translation, the cleft of the rock actually can actually not only mean, when I thought, I always thought about this, cleft of the rock means like a little crevice. So you got like the idea like there's a crack in the wall, rock and that, that ultimately Moses was hiding this little crack in the rock. But the little translation literally means, it also can mean cave. So what's very interesting is you look at these two stories between Elijah and Moses, that the little translation could mean that Moses and Elijah are extending the exact same spot God loves evidently Mount Sinai. And he continues to speak to both of them. So I, I think about this story and I, I love the idea that God comes and he, and he, he doesn't speak to Elijah in the story. He doesn't speak to him in, a, in the fire. He doesn't speak to him in the earthquake. Um, he doesn't speak to him in, in all these different very, but he does speak to him in the still, small voice, in the hush, in the whisper, listening. And God says, this is my son, the beloved. You need to listen to him. You know what I also love about this story is that I love the idea that you know God speaks, and God doesn't always speak in the dramatic way. That's why I love about this particular story is because I think a God speaks sometimes like in the barely audible in the, in the places of our life and we're maybe the most broken and yet God's still there. And, and, what I, and what I love about that, so like for example, when you think about the raising of Lazarus, that's a pretty dramatic story, right? And when I think about, and what I love about that story, it's God, Jesus speaks and he says, Lazarus, come forth, I love that. And so there's Lazarus, comes out in this grave. I mean, you can't get any more dramatic than that, right? Here's this dead guy walking out. Jesus just speaks the word. He comes out. He's all in his, in his grave clothes. And what's the next thing Jesus says? He says, I'm bind him. Set him free because he is a free. 
And he's alive. Praise God, right? We love that. And yet, I love the part and the intimacy of the story that comes just, by the way, if you go back and look at the story, what's the story before the story? The two things is there's the story of Jesus and the Pharisees bringing the woman who's caught in adultery. Comes just before the story. Go back and read it for yourself. Jesus is there, he's at the temple and they bring in this woman and they have her stand there and they say to Jesus, you know, um, the law says, the law says, the law says, this is what we're supposed to do, we're supposed to kill her. Now what do you say? Jesus gets down, I love this part, he gets down, he stoops in the sand, he starts doodling in the sand, we don't know what he wrote, right? And then Jesus says, ye without sin cast the first stone. Silence. And one by one, beginning with the eldest, they begin to drop their stones. Plop, plop, plop. And then Jesus turns to the woman and says, by the way, this story is just before the transfiguration story. Woman, who's left to condemn you? Well, no one, Lord. Well, neither do I. Go and send them more. What I love about those two stories is that one is so dramatic. I mind him, this dead guy walking out. And then you got this personal, intimate, powerful conversation between this woman who's caught in adultery and Jesus. And both those stories are really about freedom. One of them, he says, unbind him and set him free from, take off his grave clothes, and then Jesus frees this woman of all her sinfulness and all this guilt and all this awful baggage that she has in her life. And Jesus says to her, go and send no more. You see the difference between, and so I, I, what I love about this story tonight is that it really reveals to us that sometimes God reveals himself in so many different ways, but it doesn't have to be dramatic. Sometimes God speaks in this still small voice. And that could be in the middle of an intersection. It could be in the dock at three o'clock in the morning. Um, it could be walking across a church parking lot as you're contemplating bailing on the ministry. Name your story, right? Everybody has their own story where God has come and maybe spoken to you. Maybe it's when a doctor comes in and says, you know, you got cancer. Or maybe it's when your husband comes in and says, you know what, I don't love you anymore, I want a divorce. Or maybe it's when your accountant comes in and says, by the way, you're bankrupt. What do you do now? So I, I think there's really, this is a really, really great story. And it's just got so much great content to it. But there's so much, um, there's this great history that we have in this great story. But also there's this, it's just dripping with applications to who we are and how we fit into the story. And I I'm really am really, really grateful for the power of the story. You know, the other thing I think about the story and what I'm teaching on this is that, um, Elijah, once again, there, there's a difference between Elijah and Moses in this story. Once again, they go to that exact same place. They're standing in the same spot. Chances are God speaks to both of them. And what's very interesting, if you go back and reread the story, is that Moses pleads for the Israelites' life. 
In other words, God is really upset with them because they made a golden calf, right? And Moses basically says, listen, don't, you know, don't nuke them. I, you know, we, we can't have that God. And he pleads for them, right? And so we have that part of the story. But yet in Elijah's story, it's the exact opposite. Elijah says, you know what, God? You know, I, you know, I don't get it. I, I'm the last guy staying. Nobody really cares. Why should I care? And God says, Elijah, why are you here? What are you doing here? It's almost as if, well, it's very powerful in the story. It's almost like Elijah's really ultimately saying to God, everything that's happened since this happened on Moses, when you had this conversation with Moses, everything that since has happened, it's all been in vain. It doesn't really matter. Elijah's on this pity party, by the way. So he's throwing everybody else on the bus. I'm the last guy. So I know one else cares except me, blah, 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 blah. And God is not going for it. He's not going for it, right? And so Elijah, ultimately, he, he has this, once again, he tells Elijah, listen, I want you to go back. And he says, I want you, and he basically appoints the one who's gonna come after Elijah and this guy, the next guy up, the next guy up. God's always got the next guy up. It's Elijah. And by the way, the works of Almighty God are never in vain. Come in on that. The working of the Holy Spirit in your life, it's never in vain. I can tell you as God is my holy witness, those three key things in my life, I know that God's continued to work in my life. I know that God continues to love me. I know that God has got compassion for me. I know that God still cares for me. I know that God still has mercy on my soul. And the work of the Holy Spirit in my life and the work of your Holy Spirit in your life, even when maybe you got a cancer to, diagnosis or you've been bankrupt in your life or your husband came to you and says, I don't love you. Listen, the work in the Holy Spirit is not in the vein. God is still there and God continues to ask the question, why are you doing here? Why are you here? Which means that God's still working and staying walking with you. He's still present in your life. And the work of the Holy Spirit is never in vain. And that is the gospel truth. So when I, I think about this story, uh, um, there's, this, there's this really powerful part. Once again, I, I love this part of the story. So Jesus, um, so Peter is up there and you know, Peter, Peter just can't help himself, right? He always just has to say something. So this is this clever point in the story. So Peter says, okay, God, uh, Jesus, what do you want me to do? Do you want me to build some tents? I'll build one for you. I'll build one for Moses. I'll build one for Elijah. So we have to ask ourselves, why? that's kind of an odd request, isn't it? Why would he ask that? Well, what's interesting about that is when you think about tent, and actually is the word we call the Feast of Booths. And the Feast of Booths has to do with there is a celebration they have. The Jewish people still celebrate this every single year. And the Feast of Booth has to do when how the children of Israel were actually let out of bondage and they had to continue to pitch a tent. And yet God continued to go with them every step of the way. So there's this celebration, the festival of the Feast of Booths. And what's very interesting is that there's this great part. So part of the story where Peter's talking about, do we want to pitch a tent? It's actually connected to the Feast of Booths part of the story of Moses leading the children of Israel out of bondage, and they continue to pitch a tent. Everybody with me? Okay. So what's very powerful about this part of the story is this. So Jesus 
is at the Feast of Booths. And guess what he does at the Feast of Booths? Go back and read the story. He has a very powerful conversation with a woman who's been caught in adultery at the Feast of Booths. If you go back and read the story in the Gospel of John, what's very powerful, you ready? Um, they, the tradition was that they would go get the water from the pools of Siloam and the priests would bring the water and they've put them in the bowls as there's this great big celebration there at the Temple Mount. And so Jesus has gone to the Temple Mount and he's there. And what's very powerful is that Jesus says, as they're pouring the water into, from the pools of Siloam, into these bowls to celebrate the Feast of Booth, this is what Jesus says. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures has said, has streams of living water will flow from within them. Jesus. And then the next day, Jesus says, at the Feast of Booths, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness but we'll have the light of life. So not only is Jesus the living water, but he is the light of the world. And all that is connected with the Feast of Booths. It all points to Jesus. Moses, the one who represents the law, he's pointing to Jesus. Elijah, who represents the law of the prophets, he's pointing to Jesus. The countenance of Jesus Christ on that mountain it all points to his glory that's different from any other human being. There's a difference. The glory points, the, the, the glowing points to the glory and the majesty that's actually gonna be held in heaven someday. I love that part of the story. So we, we have this, this very powerful part of the story that God says, you know, I want you to listen. You need to listen to him. We have this presence of Jesus Christ on the mountain. And so listen, Moses and Elijah have their mountaintop experiences, but Jesus has his own mountaintop experiences. And it all points to revealing who Jesus really is. So what's very powerful once you get about this part of the story is that there's, it's, a, it's a bridge story. Because the bridge story ultimately has to do with we gone from Jesus' baptism and the beginning of Jesus' baptism points to his ministry. So we have a manifestation of, once again, that what Jesus really is all about. We see the glory of Jesus, the see the glory of God coming through Jesus Christ. And how do we see that after his baptism? The way that he ultimately does the next three years of his life. And the next three years of life, this, what does he do? He heals the sick. He heals the lame. He heals the blind. He heals the crippled. He casts out demons. He preaches the good news to release the captives. He talks about loving God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and to love your neighbor yourself. So you have this, over the next three years, the span of his life, from the beginning of his baptism, you have this, the manifestation of who really God is through Jesus Christ. And then we finally get to the transfiguration story and Jesus' own mountaintop experience story. And by the way, Moses is good, Elijah is good, but they don't hold a candle to Jesus Christ. Can we amen on that? That's the point of the story. So Jesus has his own mountaintop experience. And in the midst of that mountaintop experience, is he ready? Okay, don't miss the detail. You got two brackets. 
at the very beginning of Jesus's, before he starts his ministry, we have the baptism story. And what happens in the baptism story? John the Baptist baptizes Jesus. He comes out of the water. It was fitting for him to do that. And the heavens open up and we hear the voice of God. And the voice of God says, this is my son. When you get to the mountaintop experience of transfiguration, what do we hear? We hear the words of Almighty God, this is my son. I'm pleased with him. You need to listen to him. You see the story? So this is why this transfiguration story is so important. So you have the beginning of Jesus' ministry. You got the baptism story. You got the epiphany. We got baptism. And all of a sudden, we got the the perspective of Jesus' ministry of revealing who he really is and the connection that really ultimately this is this is the son of God. He is the Messiah. He's the savior of the world. And it all comes together. And then the last part of this little message tonight is once again, once you get to transfiguration, what happens next? Well, they come down off the mountain because, you know, he says, well, we're just gonna stay up here and Jesus says, wrong answer. We're not just gonna pitch a tent. We got more to do. And what's very interesting, if you go back and read the beginning of the story, what's very powerful is that before the mountain of transfiguration story, Jesus says to all his disciples, and by the way, I'm gonna die. He sets it all up. Before he goes on the mountain, he says, this is what's gonna happen. And what's powerful is I think that for Peter and James and John, as they hear these words and they're thinking, this can't happen, this can't, and I think it really ultimately gave them some sense of reassurance that ultimately that Jesus Christ says, he's got this. This is, this is, this is what's gonna happen, and yet God's glory is completely gonna come to fruition through his death and resurrection. So we have this this climax in the story, and I think it's really, really powerful because we have this connection. So the glory of Jesus' baptism, this is my son, with him I'm pleased. The glory of of the found in Jesus Christ and the transfiguration and the glory as resurrection, it all comes together in this. Because ultimately, the transfiguration story points towards Jesus' death and resurrection, and it points towards Lent the last phase of Jesus' life. This is why this, story, this particular Sunday this year is so important in the Christian year. We got epiphany, we got advent, we got epiphany, we got baptism of the Lord Sunday, we got transfiguration story, and it comes just on the hills just before we go into Lent. We got the whole package that all points towards Jesus going to Jerusalem. And what happens to Jerusalem? They kill the prophets in Jerusalem. So, Here's the last little part of the thing today. Is one that's again, I, I love this part of the story because I think that ultimately the transfiguration story, it really is ultimately a bridge. It, it points us, it's the bridge between this part of the Christian year, it points towards the bridge between um, moving towards Lent and Jesus' death and resurrection. So we have his, his baptism, we got his ministry, and then we got his death and resurrection. And it all comes to full, full fruition and the glory, not only glory that we find in his baptism, the glory of the transfiguration, but the glory that we find ultimately in his death and resurrection. Can I amen on that? It comes full circle. Jesus is in the bridge building business. 
So here's the last little part today. And I, I went and did my detective work. And so I'm gonna close with this. I went and looked up um, the 15, uh, the title of the article was 15 most famous bridges in the world, okay? So I thought this was really interesting, this particular article. So let me just show you a few. Can you just put that uh, first slide of that first bridge? And so here's one of the most famous bridges in the world, Golden Gate Bridge. Many of y'all probably been there, right? That was number two on the list. Okay, and then there's this other bridge that was actually, um, I think this is actually in Europe. I just thought this was fascinating. They built a bridge that ships go across. I mean, I thought, that is really cool. I'd never seen that before. So that's a really cool picture. Can you go to the next picture? And then here's the Brooklyn Bridge. That was an amazing feat. And then here is the next picture is London's Bridge. This is an amazing feat. And then you get to the next one. This is the Australia Bridge. This is an amazing feat. And then you get to that one. And what's interesting about that one, it's called the Pontevicio Bridge. It's literally called, which means in Italian, it's in Florence, the old bridge. It's a medieval bridge. It, it was built um, about 7, 1345. By the way, this is the only Florentine bridge that survived World War II. All the others were blown up. It's the only one that's still standing. So what's interesting about this particular bridge, can you put that bridge back up real quick? That, no, no, yeah, okay. So th what's interesting is there's all these little um, shops on it, right? You can see the little, like, and so um, they have shops, they have, there's jewelers in there, they have souvenir shops, there's, um, you know, little trinkets that you can buy on that particular bridge. But at the beginning, um, there's this been history because what's very interesting is, there used to be vendors on that. And the interesting thing was, if a vendor was actually couldn't pay their bills, the soldiers would come in and break the table. And what's very interesting about that is we get the word table, which means tablewares, which, which means banco, B-A-N-C-O in Italian, and the word rado, which means so it means broken. Soldiers would come and break the table because they couldn't pay their debt. And here's the rest of the story. This is where we get the term bankruptcy from this bridge. And see, you know what? I, I, so let me show you the last bridge tonight. And so what I love about this picture is that Jesus came to build the bridge. For all of us in our lives, when we have been at the place in our lives, we feel like we're depleted and we are literally bankrupt. And it may be when you're sitting on a dock, Harold, what are you doing here? Or, or maybe it's when you're walking across the parking lot, Harold, what are you doing here? Or you're in the middle of the intersection, Harold, what are you doing here? I don't know why I'm doing here, Lord, but I need you. So the beautiful thing is that Jesus Christ came for people who've ever experienced that feel in their lives that they have literally been bankrupt. He came to bridge that gap for all of us. And he says to all to us tonight, I love you, I care for you, and I have built a bridge for you and there's a place for you in heaven.
and I am the way and the truth and the life. I am the light of the world. I am the living water. And the table behind me has been prepared for all of us who have ever experienced bankruptcy. 